Hello there. Welcome to Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with me, Ken MacDonald, the former director of public prosecutions and barrister at Matrix Chambers. And with me, Tim Owen. I'm also a barrister at Matrix Chambers, specialising in crime, public law and human rights law. Each week we discuss developments in the law uh, and the politics that are driving those developments, sometimes just the two of us, um, but more often with an illustrious guest. Uh, And I'm delighted to say that our guest this week is... Dina Rose QC. Um, Dina, uh, for those of you who don't know, and many of our, most of our listeners, I would say, do know, is one of the glittering stars of the bar, rightly described in the leading legal directory as one of the outstanding barristers of her generation. Um, her practice has encompassed human rights law, competition law, telecommunications, regulation, and discrimination amongst uh, a wide variety of uh, other areas. She's appeared regularly in the United Kingdom Supreme Court, the Court of Justice of the European Union, and the European Court uh, of Human Rights. And among her recent triumphs was the Hong Kong case of QT versus the Director of Immigration, in which she persuaded both the Hong Kong Court of Appeal and the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal that the Director's refusal to grant dependent spouses visas to gay married couples was discriminatory and unlawful. I'm quite sure that if you polled the legal profession, Dinah would certainly feature uh, in its pick of the very best. Dinah's presently uh, president of Magdalen College, Oxford. Welcome, Dinah. Hello, uh, Ken and Tim. Lovely to be here. Uh, And yes, uh, and and welcome from me also, Dinah. Um, Ken and I thought it'd be great to interview you because... A couple of weeks ago, it was announced that after a, a pretty lengthy, I think, six-month search to uh, appoint two new justices to the Supreme Court, uh, it was announced that the two successful candidates um, are Lord Lloyd-Jones and Sir David Richards. Um, now, they're both white men. Uh, they're both over the age of 70. And the announcement of their appointment triggered uh, quite a lot of comment on Twitter, including uh, some tweets from you. And if I just read one of of them back to you, and then we'll just ask you to develop your thoughts on this. Uh, In one of your tweets, you said, I consider that secrecy, the involvement of the Supreme Court justices, and the consultation of the senior judiciary are the routes by which subconscious biases most easily enter. They favour self-replication. If asked what merit looks like, it's too tempting for judges to say, like us. So, Dinah, um, expanding on that, um, what do you think these appointments say about the the current state of play in the senior judiciary? I think the thing I want to say at the, at the outset is that I am not seeking in any way to criticise uh, either Lord Lloyd-Jones or uh, Sir David Richards, both of whom are excellent judges. Uh, of course, as, as well as both being white men over 70, they are in fact both called David. Uh, <laughs> take, taking the ratio of Davids to women on the Supreme Court to an impressive three to one. Yeah. I, think there's, I think all three Davids also went to Cambridge. So there, oh my goodness. there's David Kitchen as well. So there's three Davids all went to Cambridge. Yes. and. Um, and, and one, one woman, Lady Rose, who I should stress is no relation. Um, so it's disappointing, I think, that the Supreme Court started, uh, founded in 2009, 
has so far had 28 male judges, four women, and all judges have been white. That is a pretty depressing record from that court. And I think for too many years, we've heard the same plea, oh, well, it's because there's a lack of women in the pool from which they recruit. You're looking at the composition of the bar as it was 30 years ago and so on and so on. Because when you look at the pools from which they recruit, primarily, of course, the Court of Appeal, but also the senior ranks of academia, as we saw in the case of Lord Burroughs, and even from the senior ranks of the bar, as we saw in the case of Lord Sumption, uh, and of course, solicitors. If you look at all of those pools, you will see that they are significantly more diverse, even the Court of Appeal now, significantly more diverse than the Supreme Court and than the recent appointments to the Supreme Court. And I think that does raise questions as to why they are finding it so difficult to identify talented candidates who are not white men over 70 called David. Let, let's, um, let's start at the beginning, Diana. Could, could, you, could you explain to our listeners how the appointment system for the Supreme Court works, how it's supposed to work? Because it, I think it's important for us to understand that, to come to some conclusions about why we are where we are. Yes. I mean, of course, we're immediately at something of a disadvantage because the system that operates for the UK Supreme Court appointments is quite secretive. And I think one of the things that we see in this country is, is we're tremendously dismissive of the US Supreme Court. And I can understand why when you, when you look at the enormous polarization, the politicization and the conflicts that, that have appeared on that court, uh, even leaving aside uh, its recent very controversial decisions. But one thing you can say about the US Supreme Court is that its appointment mechanism is completely transparent. Everybody understands who the candidates are. Uh, you have the confirmation hearings where people's views are explored. Everybody knows who's appointed to the Supreme Court. In the UK, I think we have almost the opposite problem, which is that these appointments pass under the radar. There, there was not, not really a whisper about these two new appointments outside the specialist legal press. Uh, and nobody knows anything about the judges who are appointed. Uh, in, in this case, of course, both judges who previously retired. Now, so far as the process goes, this is what we know. There is an advertisement and there are criteria for appointment. You have to be uh, a senior legal practitioner with a certain number of years qualification. Uh, just to interrupt there, th those criteria for selection yeah. uh, is, are based in yeah. statute, are based That's on right. statute, aren't they? The Constitutional Reform Act. Yeah. There is then a commission, because these are not appointments that are made by the Judicial Appointments Commission. They're made by a specially appointed commission, which is generally chaired by the current president of the court and will contain one other very senior judge. Sometimes it's the Lord Chief Justice. On this occasion, I believe it was the Master of the Rolls, uh, Geoffrey Voss. Yes. There will yeah. then be three other members of that commission who are not judges and who will represent the interests of different jurisdictions, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. And they are non-lawyers, they're non-judges. Non right. yeah. And then yeah. there is a process by which people are shortlisted. We know little about that process. What we do know 
is that current senior members of the judiciary, including, I believe, all current members of the Supreme Court, will be consulted about the candidates and asked to express their views. And this is what I have uh, called uh, secret soundings, and indeed what many people describe as secret soundings, because the candidates don't see what's said about them. It's not comparable to a normal system of referees, where if you're a candidate for a job, you'd expect to choose your own referees. Um, all of the senior judiciary are being asked to express a view of a candidate, a bit like members of a club deciding whether to blackball an applicant. If I can just interrupt you there, in fact, again, the, it's the 2005 Act prescribes a set of people who must be consulted, and they are described as the senior judges, and they are the judges of the Supreme Court, the Lord Chief Justice, the Master of the Rolls, the Lord President of the Court of Session, the Lord Chief Justice of Northern Ireland, the Lord Justice Clerk, the President of the Queen's Bench Division, the President of the Family Division, and the Chancellor of the High Court. So statute requires all of those people to be consulted. So I was going to, I was going to say, Donna, this, this raises the question, doesn't it, of the extent to which the judiciary should be choosing it itself. I mean, we, we used to have a system years ago, and, and the same applied in the Queen's Council system, that people got tapped on the shoulder and invited to apply. And the Judicial Appointments Commission system is intended to create a more rigorous, objective, fair, transparent process. I mean, listening to you describe the way Supreme court judges are uh, selected. It, it sounds rather as though a system has been developed to, to, if you like, protect the Supreme Court from the rigor, objectivity and transparency of the process that applies to all other judges. And I wonder whether in the case of the most senior court in the land, that, that can be appropriate. I think that it's fair to point out that there is some lay involvement from the three members of the commission who are not judges. But what concerns me is the combination of the secrecy of the process and the degree of influence that sitting senior judges have over it through the consultation system. Effectively, the existing senior judiciary are gatekeeping who sits in the Supreme Court. And you have to question whether that is appropriate in a democracy, given the constitutional and political sensitivity of many of the cases that they hear, and whether it has adverse effects for diversity, given the very uh, homogenous composition of the list of statutory consultees that Tim has just very helpfully read out. Um, I suppose the reality is that if you are one of the three lay members of this commission and you've got the president of the Supreme Court, the master of the roles, all saying, well, we've consulted all of the senior judges. We all think that X is the right person and Y. I mean, the, the three lay members, of course, they are there. They have equal votes. But it's, it's I guess it's an extremely difficult um uh, decision-making process for them in that situation, isn't it? I wouldn't want to comment on that because obviously I don't know what uh, has happened in any of these individual decisions. I think the closest we get to it is uh, Lord Hope in his diaries uh, describes one selection process where one of the lay members of the commission wanted a female candidate uh, and said, well, they thought it was appropriate that if, if you could have a quota system for Welsh or Scottish judges, why couldn't you also 
um, ring fenced a job for a woman. And he said he thought that would be inappropriate and it didn't happen. So that, that's one rare example of light being shone on how that process operates. But I wouldn't want to in any way suggest that the three members of that commission aren't capable of standing up for themselves and having strongly expressed views. I'm sure they are. Well, they, 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 they probably are. But actually, Tim made the very point that, that I was about to make. I mean, these judges are not just judges. They're very, very august figures. And, I, and, and one, of the, one of the things that has to be secured in this system is confidence from people outside it, the people inside it, are um, acting in a way that produces the best results. And the fact that we don't know exactly what goes on or don't have a better idea of what goes on is a problem in itself. But I'd be very surprised, frankly. And, I, and again, I'm not like you, Dino, in any way criticizing the, the lay members of this panel. But I'd be very surprised if the judicial figures on the panel don't hold enormous sway. And, 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 and I, I, would, I would myself suspect that it would be quite rare for anyone to be appointed over the wishes of the president, over the wishes uh, of other senior judicial members of that committee. I mean, I've, I've sat on lots of committees in my career, as I'm sure you have, and that's just how committees work. Some people have more influence than others. Some people run the game better than other people do. And I, I, I have no reason to suppose, none of us any reason to suppose it, that it's any different with this committee. Well, that might be a reasonable inference. <laughs> <laughs> very, dip very diplomatic. <laughs> One of the things, though, uh, you've obviously you were, you've criticised the lack of transparency. I mean, I suppose the Supreme Court would say, well, if you go to the web page on the Supreme Court website, there is a whole page setting out the procedure for appointing a justice of the Supreme Court. So the procedure is clear. Your point, I think, is in this case, we don't know who else applied. Um, and therefore, it's impossible to know or judge, perhaps, um, who the pool was, uh, and therefore, whether the ultimate decisions uh, can be seen to be fair. I mean, is that is that your view? Part of it, but I actually see the more serious flaw as being the consultation process. The idea that you have this pool, an overwhelmingly white male pool of consultees who are expressing their views uh, to the panel about the individual candidates. That, that's the aspect of the process that troubles me the most. Because the, the opportunities for settling old scores or promoting a candidate that's your mate from the Garrett Club or anything like that are, are, are almost limitless. And, and even if you leave aside what you might think of as more egregious examples of, of abuse and assume that everybody is operating at the ultimate level of propriety, the problem is that you have enormous uh, risk of groupthink because you're talking about a very tight circle of people who are all the same age and have very similar backgrounds being asked about merit. And people naturally think when they've been very successful that the best candidates are the people who look most like they looked 20 years ago. It's human nature. This gets the nub of it, doesn't it? It's, it's this old problem, which was um, absolutely rife under the old system that people tend 
to recruit uh, in their own image. And as yeah. you say, Diana, for perfectly rational reasons, I'm, you know, if I'm a judge, I might say to myself, I'm very successful, I've done well, you know, I've won all the glittering prizes. Um, and somehow there's a risk that I project my qualities and my characteristics onto the figure of an ideal candidate to replace me or to join me. Um, That's right. And it's a quite a small world, isn't it, the judiciary, the senior judiciary? I mean, p- people live together, they work together, they eat together, they're members of the same inns. It's a, it's a small world. And so there's a real risk that people recruit in their own image. And, and that's what the new judicial appointment yeah. system was designed to avoid. Um, and, and I suppose the question we have to ask in the end is look at the results i mean in terms of diversity what have the results been you touched on this earlier yes we've we've only had four women sit on the supreme court since 2009 and we've had no people of color on that court at all can i bring up uh, with you because i i read it reread it this morning um a lecture that was given by Lord Sumption, Jonathan Sumption, as long ago as November 2012. It was called Home Truths About Judicial Diversity. And he began by saying, in modern Britain, the fastest way to make enemies is to deliver a public lecture about judicial diversity. Unless you confine yourself to worthy platitudes, you're almost bound to cause offence to someone. So that's how he began. But he then went on to say that in his view, and he'd sat on the Judicial Appointments Commission by then for, I think, a year or so, he said the reasons for the domination of the judiciary by white men are complex and the selection process is only part of the problem. Uh, And he said that he thought the problem began with an education system that tends to perpetuate disadvantage. It continues with patterns of working in ancient professions and with unspoken, often unconscious attitudes, which have been years in the making. And he goes on to say that in the long term, uh, a judiciary broadly representative of the population will come about. The problem is not the direction of change. It is the speed human beings have a touching confidence in the capacity of their institutions to decree change when in fact all that they can do is to push them in the right direction. Now he says positive discrimination in his view is the only thing likely to accelerate the rate of progress significantly and he says it should be on the menu even though he himself thought it was undesirable and he focuses on the starting point is the criteria for the appointment of judges and the merit point that that means there can be no selection on the basis of altering the makeup of the judiciary as a whole. What's your view about that analysis and in particular the positive discrimination? Sounds like there may be a dog somewhere. There is. Let me let me remove the dog and then I'll answer. Hang on one second. Okay, Dino, we will wait for Fido to exit the room. Obviously, obviously the dog's hungry. Yeah. Yes, uh, Scrumpy the Maudlin Oh, that's dog. great. That's um, Scrumpy. Yeah. Okay, not Fido. Yes, he thinks yeah. he thinks yeah. it's lunchtime. Um, he's wrong about that. Um, so, so I think first of all, that's a really interesting uh, comment by Lord Sumption, and I think a lot of what he says is hard to disagree with, particularly the points he makes about entrenched discrimination in the system, uh, going back to the education system and the way the profession works. Um, first thing. Of course, there is some limited provision for affirmative action in the statutory scheme. It's the the tiebreaker clause. The tiebreaker, yes. If you have two candidates of equal merit, you are allowed to select in order to uh, increase the diversity of the court. You are allowed to do that. Um, Of course, the other thing to make clear is that there is already 
positive discrimination operating in the makeup of the Supreme Court in a way which decreases its racial and gender diversity. And that is the uh, requirement that there must be judges familiar with law in different parts of the United Kingdom, which in practice means that at the moment there are two Scottish judges, a Northern Irish judge and a Welsh judge on the court. And they are being recruited from judicial pools that are even less diverse than the pools in England, because they, they are really tiny pools from which those judges are recruited. Particularly the Northern Ireland judiciary is a, is a minuscule pool, overwhelmingly uh, white and male. So once, so the idea that you're only recruiting these judges on merit is, is actually already demonstrably not correct, because your chances of becoming a Supreme Court judge if you practice in Northern Ireland must be a hundred times greater than they are if you practice in England. So there, there, there isn't simply recruitment on merit, there's already positive discrimination. Personally, I do not favor positive discrimination on grounds of sex or race or any other uh, protected characteristic. Uh, I think that what we have seen in the High Court and the Court of Appeal over the last decade is that those parts of the senior judiciary have actually made significant steps in improving their diversity through merit-based transparent recruitment. And I think before you went down the positive discrimination road, I would like to see the Supreme Court at least try some basic good practice, <laughs> including transparency and uh, openness. I, th I think you're. I think you're right about this, and I, I agree with you about positive discrimination. And the area that, that I know best is the criminal bar. The criminal bar became, you know, from the mid late 1980s onwards, extraordinarily diverse in terms of sex, race, uh, and and in, in every other way. And a consequence has been that the circuit, the criminal circuit bench, if you like, the Crown Court judges, are now, I mean, unrecognisable compared to 20 or 30 years ago. And that's simply because the Judicial Appointments Commission began to pick from a more diverse pool. Well, we do have a reasonably diverse pool, not, not as diverse as it should be, but a reasonably diverse pool in the, the Court of Appeal. The problem is people and some pretty obvious candidates are simply not being tapped yes, up. Yes, and we don't know why, of course. We don't, we don't know whether yeah. they have applied, whether they were reluctant to apply, whether they were encouraged to apply, we, have, we just don't know. But you know. doesn't that, in a way, what the point you've made about the recruitment um, to the Court of Appeal and to the High Court bench in the last five years, at least, certainly, doesn't that make Lord Sumption's point, which is that it will take time, but as the pool uh, becomes more recognisably uh, reflective of the population at large, there will be a different pattern at the highest level? Well, I'm not sure, though, because I think that there does seem to be some sort of logjam at the Supreme Court level where the increased diversity in the pool from which the Supreme Court is, is recruiting is not being reflected in the appointments being made to the Supreme Court. And that's really the point I think I've been making. But, but, I mean, if we go we rewind a couple of years ago, we had three, I think, three women members of the Supreme Court. We had Baroness Hale as the president. We had Lady Arden and we had um, Lady um, Black. 
So uh, uh, there was a period where there were three women on the Supreme Court. Now, of course, uh, Lady Ardner and Baroness Hale have both retired. Uh, Lady Rose has been appointed, as you say. Um, and we've now got two men who've been appointed. I mean, unless one is having a sort of quota system, is that not for a while the kind of pattern that you might expect? Fluctuations in the composition. I, I think it's disappointing when you have two vacancies that you are unable to produce a more diverse result than two white men over 70 called David. I think uh, they could have they could have found they could have found a more diverse solution than that. Even, it's, you know, it's not a good and look. It's not a good look, but but also um, because of the increase in the retirement age to seventy five, there are going to be no more vacancies in that court till I think it's twenty twenty six. Yeah, I think that's right. Until Lord Richards so, yes. or Sir David Richards, yes. as he currently is, I think he is the next person due to retire. I wonder, I wonder, Diana, whether you think um, Lord Hope's interesting memoirs shed any light on the way <laughs> this system operates in practice. So, yes, I mean, I, I, I did tweet an extract from Lord Hope's diaries rather than strictly memoirs. He, he, kept, he kept diaries throughout his professional life, which he's been publishing in chunks. And the most recent... Do you mean there's more to come? There's more to come. I don't know if we're going to get a retirement <laughs> volume. I don't know. But uh, the most recent chunk covered his years in the Supreme Court and included the events of 2012 when there was a vacancy for president. And the candidates were Lord Newberger, Lord Mance, and Lady Hale. And with remarkable frankness, Lord Hope describes what happened at interview. And he says... Do you want me to read yes, it? Yes, go on, read it. Do you want me to yes, read yes, it? go on, read it. The term ended with a day spent with a selection commission interviewing the three candidates who have offered themselves for appointment as president of the UK Supreme Court, David Newberger, Brenda Hale and Jonathan Mance. It was a demanding but very interesting experience. Nicholas and I know all of them very well. Our three colleagues on the commission, lay members from each of the three jurisdictions of the UK, do not... In the event, the candidates' performances in interview proved to be just as the two of us had expected them to be. David Newberger was by far the best candidate, steel in a velvet glove, as Muir Russell put it, which is an attribute which I was said to possess when I was dean of faculty. <laughs> he, was, he, was completely, he was completely open, thorough in his presentation, quietly determined to improve how things are, with clear ideas as to go about things. A thoughtful, careful and well-organised man. He will be a real pleasure to work with. Brenda, on the other hand, seemed to be on the defensive for much of the time. This inhibited the depth and quality of her answers. The picture she presents of the relationship between men and women is not one which most women share, says Lord Hope. Um, yes, pretty remarkable. It's a remarkable piece. I, you could actually write a dissertation on that passage, I think. There's so yeah. much in it. There's, there's so much in it to unpick. It's very rich. Yeah. It's, very, it's very rich, and it, it makes many of the points that we've been making in this, in this conversation. I mean... They, you know, they, were exactly, they were exactly as we expected, is, is a wonderful life. <laughs> and, and steel in a velvet glove is... I mean, let's not even start asking ourselves about yeah. the psychology of Lord Hope there. 
Well, I, I, it's also interesting that he knows what women think. Well, that, I think that's remarkable. <laughs> what most, he knows. And, and, and of course, when you ask, what are the views that yeah. Lady Hale holds? Yeah. She's a mainstream feminist. She's exactly. a completely mainstream, yeah. down-the-line feminist. Exactly. And this is presented as, as being really deeply disturbing and a reason why she shouldn't be appointed. And as it turned out, was a, a wonderful president of the court after after Lord Newberger. Yes, and yeah. she eventually. Yes, of course, Nicholas referred to there, we should say, is Lord Phillips, who at that time was, was the president. So well, what you see there, by the way, is, is, of course, Lord Phillips chairing the committee that was going to appoint his successor. And this is normally a complete no-no in any normal recruitment situation. But can I, can I just put this to you? Because I, I, I have thought about this. I mean... <laughs> Unless you exclude from the final appointment commission or committee um, the, the current president of the Supreme Court, the senior judiciary, so you are in effect having a panel of, of non-judges making the decision, isn't the problem that we've discussed about a dominant view in being imposed on lay members uh, unavoidable unless you exclude them altogether? And is that a good idea? I think two really interesting questions there, whether they should be excluded, and secondly, if they're not excluded, are they inevitably dominant? So to answer the second one first, I think they're not inevitably dominant, and that, that partly depends on the calibre and professionalism of the, of the commission that's making the decision. Uh, you, you could put people of the greatest public distinction on that committee, and indeed, you should have people of the greatest public distinction on that committee, given the significance and the power wielded by judges of the Supreme Court. So I'm sure you can find people to sit on that committee who are not going to be intimidated uh, because somebody is the president of, of the Supreme Court. Um, should they be wholly excluded? Uh, I, I've struggled with this one more, and I can see the argument that they are very well placed to select. But at the moment, um, I'm not totally convinced that they should be playing a part. And I think you could put together an independent commission that might get, get you much more interesting candidates. I, 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 I don't think that there should necessarily be no judges uh, involved in this selection procedure. But I, I must say, for my part, I think it's completely in, inappropriate that serving judges of the institution to which these individuals are being recruited have some say in it. And that, that's really bad practice um, out in the, the real world, if I can put it that way. I mean, when I left a job recently, uh, similar to the job you're doing now, uh, Dinah, I was completely excluded from the selection process for my successor, quite rightly. And if, if I'd had any involvement at all, that would have been regarded as borderline corrupt. And it's the same in, in every institution, I think, that's worth its salt, that the, the, the serving members of the institution don't have a say in in, in recruiting their successors. And I, so I, th I think the involvement of serving justices of the Supreme Court is undesirable, frankly. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with that. And I think particularly when you see the president recruiting their successor as president, that is quite surprising. Well, Dinah, it's been a it's been a, a really fascinating uh, discussion. I'm sure we could go on much longer. Um, as you say, the the quote from uh, Lord Hope's diaries is is very rich <laughs> and, and could merit a, an episode of Double Jeopardy all of its own. 
<laughs> by the way, before we stop, before we stop on that, the, the next bit is is just as great. If you read on, you'll see he then contrasts Lady Hale with some other women judges he knows, like <laughs> Sean Elias, uh, who was Chief Justice of New Zealand at the time, and says, well, these women judges are lovely. Why is Lady Hale so difficult? <laughs> yeah. and, and the thing that's so hilarious about that is that he's obviously got Lady Hale in a box marked women judges, not judges. So the only people he's comparing her with are other senior women judges. <laughs> and you couldn't get a better example of somebody, uh, as the jargon goes, othering uh, a candidate. Well, we all hope we all hope that Lord Hope's diaries continue. I think certainly do, and and uh, I'm sure I'm sure he thought that he was being um, perfectly reasonable and fair. But it's just an example of the sort of groupthink uh, and self projection that we've been talking about. And I, and I I think that if you if you want to know whether the system of recruitment is working, just look at the makeup of the judges. Um, but Dinah, it's been it has been a, a, a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much. I know you're very busy, and thanks very much for giving us thank you both. your time. And I hope you have a good term next term. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you very much, Diana. Um, you've been listening to Double Jeopardy. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. There are uh, many more coming, we hope, each week uh, for the rest of the year and maybe even longer than that. Um, our producer is, as always, the excellent Billy Lawrence. We look forward to seeing you again soon.